Let's then turn in our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews today. And um, I'll be reading from verse 7 to the end. The end of the chapter, that is, verse 29. And then we'll look at a, two or three verses together. Okay. Beginning in verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are an illegitimate, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we all had human fathers discipline us. And we respected them for it. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but He does it for our benefit so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees. And make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And that, that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that the latter, you sorry, for you know that that later. When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he did not find opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to a darkened gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words. Those who heard it begged, that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to a city, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels and a festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven to a judge who is God to, of all to the spirits of righteous people made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. See it to it, that you do not, do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might, not be, might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful by it we may, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. 
Now, in chapter 12, the writer, the pastor, the, the one who is preaching this sermon, he is exhorting the Jews at that time, the Hebrews of that time, to endure the suffering, the hardship, the difficulty that they've been going through, the, not to give up. And indeed, he gives them the, the suggestion the, to look at it in a different way. That the hardship that they're experiencing in their lives is not because God has abandoned them. It's not because that God has, is punishing them. But rather that it's, a, it's, see it as God disciplining them. And the idea there, disciplining means to train them. To school them. God is schooling you. Training you. Helping you to grow and to become bigger and better. That you might be able to cope with bigger and better things. He is calling them to a greater experience. We as Christians, we all need to remember that. And to be reminded of that. That the hardships that we experience in our life is not because God has even What's that in English? Given us over? No. Forsaken us has forsaken us to, to the, the, the world and just lets the world come in and do whatever he wants with us. But God has a plan and a purpose to everything that's happening in our lives. And indeed, the Bible says that the indication of hardship in your life, of difficulty, of things that challenge you, whether they're external or internal, because not all hardships come from things happening in your life. They can come from Fears, worries, concerns, stuff that you're not at ease with. God puts you in a place of unease, of uncertainty for a time, in order that you might learn to trust, that you might overcome, that you might succeed, that you might live in a greater experience of Him. The Bible says that the indication of hardship is it should be an encouragement to you because God is working in your life. In English, in my mind at least, when I read the word discipline, I think often as a stern father, it could be because I had stern parents who were very hard. But the word isn't necessarily to do with sternness or crossness or punishment. It's to train. It is to instruct. It is to... Teach your children the right from wrong. You know the old expression, you know, we tell our kids not to put your hands in the fire. And there's always some kid, or not to touch the hot stove. There's always some silly child who says, why not? You know, why? And they don't learn until they burn themselves, hopefully. It took me a couple of times. But you know, or I have children, so when I tell them to put your phone away. Put your phone away, Why? Turn the Xbox off. Why? Go to bed. Oh, why? Because you need to, you've been on your phone for two hours now. It's time to turn it off. It's not good for your mind. You've been playing the Xbox now for many hours. Turn it off. It's not good. For, why? It's not good for you. <laughs> I can do what I want. No, you can't. I'm a dad. Turn it off. Go to bed. Why? Because it's 11 o'clock and it's time to go to bed. Why? Because tomorrow, when you have to get up, you're going to be exhausted and angry and grumpy, and it's not, you're not going to do well. <sighs> I can, I can. They don't understand. They don't understand. Their experience is limited. And therefore, as the adult in the room, you must train them. Not just for today, but you're hoping that they will learn lessons that will govern them their whole life. That they won't become degenerates drug addicts, all the rest of the stuff that we know that can happen to adults who make the wrong decisions in their lives. And so the act of disciplining, of training your child is good. And indeed, we who have been brought up, and I, my mom was super hard with me. I needed a super hard mom because I was a super wild child. And looking back at the time, I did not enjoy her harshness and her hardness. But as an adult today, I am truly grateful for the 
discipline that my mom and sometimes my dad, but it was always my mom. Okay, my mom's a dragon. I love you, mom. But you're a dragon. And uh, hard, but I'm grateful because it taught me lessons that helped me throughout all my life. Helped me to learn to govern myself. And form discipline so that I'm able to get up when I need to go to work, work hard. The, the, one of the, 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 the character traits that I like about myself, I know you're like, whoa, 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 but is that I, I'm a worker. You know, I work hard. That's what I do. I try, it's one of the reasons why I get so frustrated with my kids because I don't see that reflected in them. Hopefully when they're older they'll, they'll develop that, you know. And I get that from my mum. I get that from my mum's discipline and the teaching, you know, you have to work in this life. No one's going to work for you. We didn't have the state. You know, I don't come from a socialist country that provides everything for you. You had to provide for the sweat of your brow and from the blisters of your hands when I grew up. And that was the, the, the influence of my parents helped me. Now, if that's how it is in an earthly set, the Bible tells us that God is doing that actively in our lives. Now, you and I might not think of ourselves as children. I'm a, I'm a 40-something-year-old man, almost 50, but still in the prime of my life. Yeah. And I, I, when I said to my kids, my kids said, well, Dad, you know why? How can you have your phone and I can't have mine? I'm like, because I'm the grown-up and you're the child. And I don't spend hours of a day on my phone. iPhone is there. It's my office and all the rest. It's, I'm the grown-up. I pay all the bills. Blah, 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 blah. And I don't think of myself as a child anymore. Childish, yes. Don't talk to my wife. But, uh, but I'm not a child. But in the economy of God, in my relationship to Him, even though I've been in the faith 33 years or 34, almost 34 years, and have walked with Christ all that time, I'm still just His child. He's still actively in my life. I've gone on with Him, we've grown and, and all the rest, but there are still lessons that I must learn. He never stops being a parent and I never stop being a child. And as you get older children, you notice this. Your children never stop being your children. You're never done parenting. Parenting, not parenting. Parenting. You always have that relationship. There's always that dynamic. And as it is earthly, so it is heavenly. God is actively in your life. He wants to help you get over all the damage that sin has done to you. Things that have been done to you. Things that are naturally in you. God is trying to, and I like to use the word renovate, transform and redeem, change you, release you from the prisons that you don't even know that you're in. You're not aware. It's really hard, isn't it? That when you're in a situation to really see it for the whole perspective. Sometimes you have to step back. Or sometimes you need someone from outside to come in and look at it. An, an expert. To be able to assess and understand and to see all the moving parts of your situation, of your hardship. Well, that's God as well. You and I, we might think we know ourselves well, but God looks at us and He reads us like a book. He's been doing this for eternity. He knows when He looks at you, He sees the situation. He sees your character traits. He sees your faults and your failures. He sees your strengths and your weaknesses. He sees the habits that you make that you're continually doing and make, you know, your self-destructiveness or your prides that make you run in too quick, your over uh, sense of self or whatever. God sees all these things. He knows exactly who you are. And He's not taken by surprise. He's not, God never goes, oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you did that. No, because He knows you inside and out. He has known you since you were before you were conceived. Indeed, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the earth. God knew you before creation was created. He knew you. And therefore, the Bible says, the act or the, the actions of hardship in the life of a believer 
are indications that God is working in your life and that we are encouraged to endure it. To, I always have the image in my head of surfing the big waves. Have you ever seen this? When I was in New, Z- in New Zealand, I was on a big wave beach. I don't know if you know what a big wave beach is. Normally we have just normal waves. In New Zealand, they have these big wave beaches. They're like three-story houses. These big waves that come in off, off the, the, um, the Pacific. They just And they're like, you look at them and go, oh my goodness, that's giant. And they almost go all the way up to the beach. And then they come down immediately. It's like a tsunami that just ends on the beach nice and gently. I made the foolish mistake of once trying to surf it because I believed in myself. And I thought, I can do this. And uh, I got caught in a riptide, thrown off the board. The board hit me in the face, knocked me out, and a 13-year-old boy dragged me out of the sea. And I, and I was so angry. I was like, he should have just let me die. The embarrassment of being saved by a 13-year-old boy. Uh, but these huge waves. And, and so we know that God is active. We know that God is in our lives, that we must endure this hardship, this difficulty, the situations that we're going through in order that God's plans and purposes might be fulfilled, that he might have his way, not in the situation. God's not necessarily overly concerned in the situation, but in you as a person, that he might develop all those indivisible traits, the holiness, the love, the peace, the joy, the perseverance, that you might become more Christ-like by nature. And that's what he's doing. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we examine his life as we're demonstrated to us through the, the Gospels. Now, of course, we only know really three years, three and a half years of his ministry. We're given a little glimpse of his birth. We're given a little glimpse of his, when he was around his bar mitzvah age, 13 when he's at the temple, you remember, he disappears from the caravan. He's there and uh, his parents have to go all the way back and looking for him. You know that story. But we look at his ministry and his, that life and we see example after example after example of hardship, of difficulty, of confusion, of people trying to, to, to exploit him. And all of that, you know, him preparing the, the disciples pouring out his life, preaching the word, calling Israel to repentance, and yet just running into hardship, into hardship, into hardship, into difficulty, into difficulty, and yet him trusting in God through all those circumstances. You know, we live in that generation, don't we? Or at least, I'm not sure, quite sure, because I'm not quite sure how it was, is now, but when I was coming out of the charismatic movement, the name it and claim it, the movement was tremendous. God wants to bless your life. He wants to give you your best life now, the Joel Osteen thing that's a meme now. And the idea was that as Christians, we should be the head and not the tail. We should be the cream and not the milk. That everything that God has for us should be ours here and now. That Christians should be the top and not the bottom. That none of us should ever experience hardship or difficulty. And if you are, it's the enemy, the devil, and you have to pray against him. You have to work against him. God just wants to give you. Don and I once spoke with a youth leader from, do you remember Don? I can't remember his name. And the fellow said, this, I don't believe that God is the God of the Old Testament. I don't believe that God is sovereign because I know a priest who has cancer. Why would God give this priest a cancer that's going to kill him now I know the priest he's still alive today he had surgery and he's doing okay grand and he said I just don't believe that God would do that that's not the God that I believe in the God I believe in just wants to bless us and not to hurt us and I was like yeah we believe that too but his blessings don't necessarily come the way we think they do The greatest blessing that you and I have ever received was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Joel touched on it last week, didn't he? With the from Isaiah 53 and 54. Hardships, difficulties, trouble in your life, 
It's not an indication that God has deserted you or you, you have somehow in some way made a mistake. And you may make mistakes. You, know, you may say wrong thing. If, if I tell my wife to shut up, there's, I'm living dangerously there. I'm going to reap the consequences of that. If I'm going to be, you know, if I make wrong decisions in my life, if I stay up too late and uh, uh, play Xbox for three days in a row, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to live the consequences of that. God will let me endure the consequences of my own sin. But we're not talking about the consequences of sin. We're talking about hardships brought about in our lives that are beyond our our ability to influence. So he has encouraged them and he's, he's been speaking to them and he's telling them that this is God, the Father, actively in your life. Endure it. Receive it as a blessing, not a curse. And then he goes on today, and I want to reach, read these. I want to look at these points today. Uh, 14 down to 17. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. This is after the therefore in verse 12. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. We'll begin there. Pursue peace. That word, in one of my other uh, translations, it says, strive after peace and holiness. Strive after, the word means to, to chase, to put your energy into. It's an energy-filled word, which is really funny because the word peace is like stillness. You know, the word, it's work really hard to be still, you know, run to be still. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. As Christians, in the midst of hardship, we are to actively, busily, there's energy in that word, pursue to be still, to be at peace. Now, again, the idea of there's, what does it mean to pursue and what does it mean to be peace? In the midst of this hardship, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of all of this suffering, we are commanded to, be, to have the ambition to be at peace. And it goes on, it goes, with everyone. Who are the everyone? Well, first and foremost, with the family of believers. Or I would say, first and foremost, with yourself, with your family your husband, your wife, your children, whoever, that inner circle, and then beyond that, the community of believers, and then beyond that, the society in which you live. Be it, be ambitious to live at peace. Now, of course, that's not peace at the cost of compromise. With all that you can do, in all that you are, seek to be a person who is at peace with everyone. Indeed, if you flip over to Romans 12, I was thinking to myself when I was looking at this this week, what does it mean to pursue peace? What does that look like in a Christian context? How do we dress that up and look at it? How, how, and, and, and right here, right now, 12 verse 9, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Romans and he says this, let love be without hypocrisy, to test evil, cling to what is good. Now again, we're, we're looking, what does it mean to strive after living at peace? What is the process? How do you go about doing that? It's easy for me to say, be ambitious to be at peace with everyone. But how do you do that? Some of us will just kind of rule over like a dog, you know, and oh, show our bellies. Give up and give in. It's not about giving up and giving in. It's not about keeping your mouth closed when somebody says something stupid sometimes, you know, or, or something like that, or trying to murder your opponent. You know, uh, we know some, I know some young men who think living at peace with everyone means to literally stomp out everybody else's opinion, to crush and to control every conversation. It's not that way. So when we're looking at this, we're, we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to pursue peace with everyone? And here, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, gives us a wonderful description of what the pursuit of peace with everyone looks like. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. 
Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave a room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So again, beloved, when we ask ourselves, what does it mean to pursue peace with everyone? Here we have a wonderful example, the the biblical instruction of how about going about that. And first and foremost, as a community, as the community of believers, the congregation, we should preserve peace among ourselves. We should make it all of our ambitions to live at peace with one another. Do not cause problems and difficulties. Don once preached a message from Philippians. It's still in my mind. I always remember it. Uh, I want to say it's the best series ever, but it's one that sticks in my mind about those two ladies who were bickering and um, from. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 6 and downwards. Those two ladies who were bickering, they were, had been co-workers with Paul. They had been instrumental in, in helping and building the church. But something somewhere along the line had happened and they had a falling out. And these two ladies were causing difficulties in the church. And that was the main reason why Paul was writing to the Philippians. To stop this fight between these two very important and influential ladies in the congregation who were threatening to split it. And that's why he says, be of one mind, be in unity, pray ceasingly. Because the... Okay, thank you. And uh, so they, they had, there was, uh, um, give me back to me. So the, be of one mind. Be of one mind. To pursue peace with one another. And it's very easy. It's very easy to fall into the trap of not living in peace. It's very easy to fall into the trap of seeking to have your will. Seeking to be someone or not to be someone or to resent someone else. I remember we had a a person in the congregation who has now left but... They came to me and we had a conversation in my living room and he said, I just really re- resent that how this person, another person in the congregation, how this person is always serving. I really resent how this person is always happy in the Lord. I really resent the fact that they think they are somebody. And I said, but they're seeking to be a servant. They're, they're like literally going out of their way to help people. They're giving of their time, their money, their effort. They're doing all that they can do and asking for nothing in return. How is that a despisable? I don't know if that's a real word. Despisable thing. And that person who has now left um, just could not be at peace. Began to spit bitterness and deceit and and try to cause division because there was a spirit of jealousy and they couldn't control themselves. God was obviously revealing something and doing something in that person's heart, but instead of pursuing peace, that person sought to pursue negative things, whole world of negative things. Now, sadly, that person is in the world now 
And um, whether they are a believer or not, I do not know. Let us not be like that. Let us not use the difficulties and the hardships and the complications that arise in our lives as an excuse to be negative or to cause problems. Broke. Difficulties among us. Let us be known as a people of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do we desire to be peacemakers? Because the scriptures command us to be. It is an act of love to pursue peace with everyone. Husbands and wives. Congregational members. Christians at large, when we meet with other believers in other places who perhaps don't believe what we believe, are we pursuing peace or are we just wanting to arm wrestle? Theological jujitsu. To wreck and to destroy someone. I had a conversation with a young man not so long ago. And uh, he kept saying to me, oh, you're trying to convert me to Reformed theology. And I'm like, we haven't even talked about Reformed theology. You're trying to convert me to Reformed theology. And he's a Pentecostal young man. And I was like, I have no interest in converting you to... I, I, I said to him, I'm interested in you loving Jesus more. I'm interested in you experience the fullness of what God has for you as revealed from the scriptures and not from the imagination of some woman or some man who tells you from the front that God has a good plan for you. And that young man wanted to arm wrestle over parts of theology again, again. And I have no, I have no time for that. I'm not interested in, in, in... I mean, I have my opinions and I believe what the Bible says. All he wanted to do was say, well, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't accept that. I can't accept that. It's not about Reformed theology or Armenian theology or blah, 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 blah. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's about us. As we love Him, our love for one another and the, the rightness of our faith, rightness, should be demonstrated in the fact that we live godly, good lives. That we are people of peace in the Christian community. Now, all of us, I think, have experienced uh, believers who have awakened into biblical Christianity from worldly Christianity. And they go through the rage cage stage, isn't that what they call it? Where, you know, they're, they're oh, everyone has to believe, like, and they run around and, and lots of energy and pointing fingers and causing dis... Uh, I'm very blessed that I came to this understanding when I was an older guy and I kind of learned look, to just step away walk away before you fall into these kind of mistakes and traps but instead of pursuing for peace instead of trying to they think well I'm compromising my faith I, no beloved we, we want people to know the fullness of God and, and that they, they see the reality of it in us and through us. We are to pursue peace. It is to be your ambition. When I read one of the commentaries this week about the word pursue, he, he said, it is to make something your ambition. Like, it is my ambition to be a doctor when I'm older. It is my ambition to... No, I don't want to be a doctor, but you understand, that's the example he used. It is to make something your lifelong ambition. It is, it is the desire, not just like, today or tomorrow or you know I'll do it for a while an hour but rather that it is your desire to be something and you go to school to learn to do it you do your practice and you know doctors have to do lots of practice work in hospitals and everything and your whole life is shaped and molded by the 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 career that you want to pursue in the same sense here that our life is to be shaped and molded by our pursuit of peace. Not just internal peace, but external peace. That we live at peace with one another. We create little oases, little bubbles, little areas of peace. Not instability. 
not, remember we talked about earlier in the psalm, double-mindedness. Should I, should I not? Should I, should I not? Yes or no, I don't know. Mm, uh. But rather that we are again an oasis of peace in a land that is troubled. And this in the midst of your hardship. You can't say, well, I'll, I'll pursue peace after my hardship is done. The hardship is there to motivate you to seek that peace. That in the midst of your trouble, you are trusting in the Lord. Do you remember when, again, Joel spoke about it last week, when the Egyptians were racing after the uh, Israelites and they got stuck before the Red Sea? And there was this fearful, oh my goodness, the Egyptians are coming. Have you seen them? Chariots. Dust, sword glinting. And we're stuck here. There's the sea. What are we going to do? They're going to take us back. They're going to kill us. It's the end. Oh my goodness. And Moses said, be still and see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord struck the sea and the sea was parted. But in the midst of that panic and that turmoil, turmoil, that's an Irish word there, turmoil, and all of that trouble, and all of that hardship, and all of that potential disaster, Moses was still. He was at peace in the midst of all that hardship. And beloved, you and I as Christians, God introduces hardship into our lives that we might learn the way of stillness, the way of peace. You're encouraged to become a person of peace internally that you are resting that you are trusting that you know that God is in control despite what despite the fact that the Egyptians are coming God is in control and he will make a way where there is no way I might not see it with these eyes but I know for he has said he will never leave me nor forsake me he is in my life and I am his child and he is responsible for me therefore I will trust in him we will get through this. Pursue peace. Make it your ambition. One of the words that I read this week on this was to strive after. To chase. Like kids in the playground chasing one another. You see the kids out the back here when they're chasing one another causing so much noise but it's a wonderful sound but you know I'm old these days. And they're like, they just want to catch one another. Don't know what to do when they get them. Like, you know, Argh! and then they run the other way. Argh! And you see the children run with all their heart back and forth. You and I are to be as those little children in the pursuit of being a peaceful person within the kingdom. Pursue with everyone. Again, internally first. And then you're by degrees, circles by degrees. Your family life. Are you, a, are you a source of peace? God's peace. Not your peace. God's peace in you. To your family. To your wife. To your children. And then beyond that. To the community here in church. So when one of us is going through a difficult time, a hardship, a situation that's painful, and like it just seems night and there's no day, we're in the middle of the valley, the shadow of death, and you're able to come along and say, brother, sister, I know exactly how it feels. I've been there, done that, the Lord delivered me. Take strength, He is with you. And you're able to show compassion. You're able to empathize. Empathize? I don't know what that word is. To come along and to care for. To be the vessel of the Holy Spirit. He who is called the paraclete. The one who comes with compassion. Beloved, you are to seek to be a peaceful person. And then the second part of that verse is holiness. And holiness was always a thing that I, I've desired to be a holy person, but I think I'm too joyful, you know? I'm like, I want to be a holy person, but my idea of holiness is like Zen Buddhism, you know, 
that kind of like, you know, chilled out. Like, uh, 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 Kenny Reeves is not his name. You know, like the guy who did John Wick. He's such a laid back guy. And I always think that that's, that's my, my uh, humanistic idea of what holiness is. The guy is just so chill, you know, like, like a surfer dude. But that's not what holiness is, of course not. That's just a worldly thinking. Holiness is, means to be unto the Lord. Apart from this world and holy unto the Lord. Cut away from the world and separated unto the Lord. And as I was going through it and thinking, well, how do we, how do we in a biblical way understand what a pursuit of holiness is? So does it mean to go out into the forest and pray? Oh, yeah. Let the mosquitoes suck your blood as you pray. Please, God, make me holy. Um. And I was like, well, it can't mean that. It doesn't mean that. Because the pastor, the Holy Spirit is speaking through the writer of the Hebrews and he's talking to the community of believers and they're in the midst of trouble. They're in hardship. And he's telling them, pursue holiness in the midst. He doesn't mean go away and find a mountain and become a, a stoic. But in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of this hardship, pursue holiness and allow it to be demonstrated through your life. And what came to my mind was uh, Galatians. If you turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. In the pursuit of living this life. Chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God, dearly beloved children. Beginning of verse 1. And walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity, greed, should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking is not suitable but rather giving thanks for no and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments or for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become partakers or partners or do not become their partners. For you were once a darkness, but now you are of, are of light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. There we have, and it goes on, of course, with more ideas. But the idea there is that as Christians, we are not to be overcome by a weariness or a, 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 in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of our being disciplined by the Lord. It's very easy in Ireland we say, throw the head up. Ah, for dear sake, I'm done. To give up, to kind of... Get all the dust off you. Just, you know, go off and do something crazy instead. I have no time for these people. Ach, no. And you just walk away. And it's very easy that in the midst of our, our hardships, in the situations that we go through, to kind of be wearied of the Lord, be wearied of the situation, and then just to go ahead and uh, give in to whatever temptation is thrown at you. You're tired, you're beaten up, wearied. And all of a sudden, Facebook or Instagram or some other of these things throw some sort of image at you that you kind of look at. It's so easy to do today than it was like when I was a young man. You know, you might, when I was a young man, to, to kind of, you'd have to go to a certain place to do this. Today, everything is provided for us on the phone. We're not to be given up. 
We're not to give in to our base needs. We're not to become sexually immoral. And here in... I read Ephesians. I meant Galatians and I read from Ephesians 5. Everybody was looking at me. Nobody said anything either. These are all sinful. But that was a good experience. That was Ephesians 5 was good as well. But this is what I meant. Excuse me. I was wondering why it sounded weird and wasn't in my notes. No, it says here. I say then in verse chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, from verse, we'll read from verse, cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is nothing against these things. And then verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And it goes on. We are to pursue a life of holiness. And that is within the community. Again, beloved, we're talking not as some sort of personal voyage, personal journey between you and God that has no consequences for anyone else. Your experience with God should resonate, should touch the people around you. The evidences of your spiritual life are not that you're able to read 10 chapters of the Bible a day and pray two hours. It is in your experiences, in your relationships, in the demonstration of those invisible attributes of God being seen through your actions and your reactions and amongst those, among the people around you. So you're called to live in a lifestyle of peace, pursuing peace, of being an oasis of peace. A provider of peace. Stability. People turn to you for advice and strength whenever it's needed. That you can provide that. And that comes again through God bringing hardship, difficulty into your life. That he might discipline you, train you up how to live quiet, peaceful and productive lives. And as we pursue holiness, we must understand what holiness looks like. And of course, there are the the moral aspects of it. You say, well, Kyle, I don't drink to an excess. Is that for you, brother? I don't commit sexual morality, blah, blah, blah. I'm not the worst of sinners, but internally... What do we privately look at on our phones? What do we privately read? What do we watch on TV? Because in the first chapter of Romans, it says there that these people do these things, but not only do they do them, but they approve of those who do likewise. We might not do it, but we approve by our participation, by our watching, by our giving our approval of the things that are seen. Of done. There are certain lines in the sand that Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who live according to his teachings, cannot cross. And therefore, beloved, we must pursue a life of holiness. And why? Because the Bible tells us that, that without these two aspects, peace and holiness, people will say, well, it's only holiness. You can, you can live a life of, of broke, you know, of, of trouble, of being a, a, a source of trouble for everybody around you. But if you have holiness in your life, well, then you can see God. You can, you, you know, you, God can use you. But that's not true. Peace and holiness go together. It's the same partial. It's the, the left hand and the right. It's the tails and the head part of the coin. The two things are conjoined. You cannot separate them. And therefore, if we desire to know God in a greater sense, to be used of God 
in our generation. Do you, do you desire to be used by God? I desire. I have children who don't know the Lord. I have family members who don't know the Lord. I have neighbors who don't know the Lord. I have friends here who don't know the Lord. I desire to be used of the Lord to communicate the gospel to them. I do not want to stand in judgment one day and look down and give witness against my sons. They grew up in church. They heard the gospel every Sunday. They went to Bible studies. They've, they've had people come into their lives. They've sat down and been with people. And they, they've been as, so close, as, as close as you can get without coming to that decision, without coming to trusting in Christ. I don't want to have to stand in judgment and say, guilty. Oh, God. I desire to be used. And if you desire to be used by God, well, then there are two conditions that you must have in your life. One is that you are a person of peace. God's peace. Not compromising peace. Not the old, the old bloodhound that rolls over and shows his tummy. Oh, just take whatever you want, do whatever you want. Peace at the cost of purity. That's not peace. That's compromise. And we as Christians are not to be compromisers. Think of not our Daniel, but the Daniel, who our Daniel is named after in the Bible. Think of his three friends. I don't know their Hebrew names, but Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. The boys who were thrown into the fiery furnace. They sought to live at peace with the kingdom, the regime that was ruling over them. But when it came to their worship, they could not, would not bow the knee. And they paid the cost for it. He said, well, it all turned out well for them. It did, but for many people, I'm sure it doesn't. And they were willing to die, to give their lives. Not because they were kind of trying to start a revolution, not because they were trying to, to cause trouble. They did all that they could to bring peace and to, to fulfill their duties and, and to live in such a way as to bring glory to God. But in the worship of the Most High, they would not submit and they paid the cost. So we're not talking about peace for the sake of compromise or compromise for the sake of peace. But for all that we can do, all that we can do, we live at peace with people. Sometimes that means not being with people. Sometimes that means putting people out. And it goes on in the chapter here in Hebrews verse 15. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitterness, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiling many. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or reverent person like Esau. Again, there is the idea of maintaining purity within church. Not of, of having people who profess to be believers, but yet living in such a way as not being believers. And there is the idea of church discipline. There is the idea of, of us caring so much for the, the hearts, the minds, the souls of people that we take action to prevent that. And I like the, the, word, the word root. I have a bush in my garden, like a, a thread, you know. And uh, like a, you know, a bush. What's that in Swedish? Buska. Yeah. And... Uh, when we moved into our house way back in 2003, I think it was, um, I looked at this bush and went, I don't like this bush. The people who lived there before us had it right in the middle of our garden. And it was spreading its roots under the grass, you know, and there were bits coming up everywhere, under the terrace, everything. And I was like, I don't like this. So I, it's just some sort of sumac. I don't know what that is. So I dug it up. Actually, I, I dug it up by hand first and it didn't help. So I had Sarah's dad come with the tractor and he literally pulled it out of the ground and threw it in the forest. Drove it in the forest. In the country you can do that, okay? Yeah. And so we put it in the forest and uh, two, three, four, five years later I began to see these other things in the, in the forest. And I was like, that's like the bush we, we got rid of over there. And today, that, that bush that we, the Hungarian sumac that we threw in the forest, has taken over the entire southern part of our garden. So that it's just like one big mass 
of uh, this bush that stands with this high and is now spreading into my neighbor's garden. The bit that I threw away, may the Lord bless them, you know. It's a beautiful bush. <laughs> may, may they enjoy it all their lives. But that's a great illustration of problems undealt with. If you have a thing, a person in your congregation who's causing strife and uh, encouraging others into immorality, and if it's undealt with, the roots, the unseen consequences of those actions spread under the grace motto of the congregation. And within a few years, you have similar problems popping up everywhere throughout the congregation. Until at last, the whole of the congregation is covered in this wonderful bush that my neighbors can have for free. But it's, it's, and the harder you chop it down, the more it goes up. The only way to get rid of it is to dig it up by the roots and pull it out. So where it originally was, I don't have it anymore. Lovely apple trees and lilac and things like this. But in, where I threw it in the forest and it came back and it's all... That is why we are commanded to deal with these. That is why we're commanded to deal with these immoral influences within the congregation, within the community of believers. Because if they're undealt with, they contaminate. They contaminate other members. They contaminate the children of the other members. Gosh, we think of even just here in town, the problems that some of the other religious groups have had with Sunday school teachers who have been predators and have taken, it's like we give our children to the, the Sunday school teachers and to the... Uh, the youth leaders trusting that they will be godly, good, holy influences, and then they go and sexually prey on these children. That is why we need to show special interest control. That is why we search out the lives, and if there's any immoral tendencies there, you don't give your children to an immoral person. You don't give your children to a person who plays fast and loose with holiness. Holiness is a standard that preserves us and protects us. And again, this is why. And so here we're talking about the, the Esau's in the congregation. These people who compromise and give up whatever they want, they turn with the wind. Do you know how do you spot an Esau in a congregation? He says, you're right and you're right. And they're right. And whatever is good for him, if I can come and speak in your church, well then you're right. He sells what he believes for nothing. He gives up biblical truths for personal profit or for personal gratification. We cannot have those kind of people in the congregation. So beloved, in finishing, let us then Understand that the hardships in our life are really there because God is teaching us. God is molding and shaping and is active in our lives, helping us to grow and become. He wants us to inherit that which He has for us. And in doing so, we must then pursue to be that oasis, that well of peace. God's peace, bringing peace to a peaceless generation. And then also we must be a source of holiness. Pursue holiness. Holiness of the heart, head and heart. Holiness of your life. Holiness of your conversations. Remember I said, no coarse joking or, or bad language or these kind of things. We guard our tongue. Guard how we feel. Because without doing so, you and I will never see the Lord. Because without doing so, you might demonstrate that you're not actually a real believer. You're just a religious person. Beloved, make it your ambition in this life to see the Lord. I desire to see God. Not necessarily in this life, you know, not having theophany appearances, but rather that I, in, when I step through those, from this life into the next, well done, you good and faithful servant. 
Amen. Let's leave it there. Our Heavenly Father, please help us. Lord, we, we all have failures. We all have faltered. We've all fell down. Lord, none of us are perfect. But we thank you, Lord, you are actively working with us. That Lord, you have not given up on us, nor have you given in. You have not become tired with us, but that you are working tirelessly to bring us into a life that is full of victory and peace, that we might exist in a, in a holy fashion in this life. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ambition. The Lord, forgive us of our ambitions have turned aside to other things, that if our, our, our eyes have been distracted for a time, please, Lord, Help us to see you. Help us to see you, to know you, to live in the reality of you, that we might love our Lord Jesus Christ all the more. Lord, we desire to live at peace, Lord, with ourselves, with our families, with our community, and the culture in which we live. Oh, Lord, that we might bring glory to your name. Lord, help us. Separate us from the world and Reserve us unto yourself, Lord, that we might not walk in the ways of the world, but also that we might walk in the ways of the kingdom. That, Lord, we might be a source of health and peace and joy and patience. That, Lord, all of those attributes might be seen in us. Oh, Lord, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, amen.